So a quick note before this episode gets started. You'll notice that the audio quality is substantially different on this episode than most of them. What happened was I originally recorded it and somehow neglected to change the hardware settings so that I was using the correct microphone. And so this is an experiment that shows what the show sounds like when I just record through the microphone on my laptop. It's something that when I did this before in the past, I ended up re-recording because it was just unlistenable. This one I thought was listenable enough to give it a shot and to try to get the experience what it's like to produce a finished product starting from less optimal audio. And I, I like the way that the show turned out, so I decided to stick with it. Apologies in advance. It, it does sound more like I'm communicating the show through a telephone than through a professional microphone. But I do know now, at least, that I can record something that's at least halfway listenable from the road if I need to in the future. So that caveat in place, I hope that you enjoy the episode nonetheless. Until very, very recently, until the 20th century, in fact, no one, or at least no one in recorded history, was using the term pagan to describe themselves. They were not saying, I am pagan, or I belong to a pagan faith, because the word pagan was actually an immensely pejorative term. It was very offensive to refer to somebody or something as pagan. It was always used as some type of insult, but the type of insult actually varied greatly. In some cases, it meant someone or something that strayed from the traditionally Abrahamic faiths like Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Or in some cases, it referred to someone who was polytheistic. Hellene was another word that was used to describe these people, referring to the Greeks and the Greek pantheon of gods. In some cases, it referred to someone who was from a far-flung, far-removed rural area. It was similar to calling somebody like a country bumpkin or a, a rube, someone who was easily tricked or easily fooled. They were so far away from the actual thinking and activity of modern human life, that they were pagan and had pagan beliefs, which implied that they were simpletons of some kind. And in some cases, it actually referred to people who were citizens, who were non-military citizens of a particular society. And that was a very common and parallel usage alongside the non-Abrahamic faith usage of it for a good period of time. And so for a good long portion of history since we had this word, the word pagan was not something that you would call yourself. And, and yet today, we tend to look back at history and we slap the label on all kinds of things. Stonehenge is pagan, the result of pagan practices and pagan rituals. The Parthenon in Greece, an example of pagan architecture. Magic rituals that involve the burning of incense and maybe a cow skull or two. Pentagrams and such. Pagan, all of them. Which, in a way, is correct, or, or at least correct-ish. 
there was a resurgence of fascination with the pagan cultures back in the 18th and 19th centuries. And during this period, there were a lot of aristocratic scientists who were people who came from immense privilege and wealth, and they were very educated, and they considered it to be kind of part of their birthright to go out and discover things. It was either that or just go to parties all the time. And so a lot of people, particularly men, but some women as well, who came from this aristocratic background would then venture out into the world and they would become learned. They would try to add to the primarily European body of knowledge from which they had themselves become educated. And so they'd go out on safari, they'd go out and hunt new creatures, they'd learn about new tribes, they'd pick up languages, they would bring back examples of the, what they considered to be often more primitive world to the highly sophisticated and developed European world that they came from. And so as a result, there was a lot of good research that was done during this time, a lot of interesting discoveries and a lot of amazing information gleaned for the larger population, because this culture, the European culture of this time period, was also very into publishing and distributing information. But a lot of it was also incredibly condescending, at least by today's standard, it was incredibly racist. There's a sociological concept called the noble savage, and the idea here being that anything that is old, anything that is primarily non-European, but in some cases the, the same thing is applied for other cultures like the, the Han Chinese looking at other cultures in the region, they did the same thing to a certain degree. Anytime you look at a culture that is a culture that you perceive to be less developed, societally, technologically, etc. And then you look at them and say, oh, they're so noble, they're so wonderful, they're so peaceful, they're so calm. Basically looking at them and saying that they're the opposite of what you perceive your culture to be, and then deciding that that is inherently more noble or morally correct than what's going on in your culture. This is referred to as the noble savage perspective. And it's something that is a little bit weird to think about because in some ways it's meant to be flattering. It's meant to be a good thing. But what it ends up being is incredibly reductive. This is something that has been done to Native Americans in, in North America, for example, for a very long time, where people look at the culture and say, oh, it's so magical, it's so wonderful. Look, they, they believe in nature and this and that and so on and so forth. And aspects of that appreciation are true, but in the way that it's being appreciated, it's leaving out a lot of very important facts. And as a result, it is reducing Native American culture into kind of a caricature. And so these people who are appreciating the culture are appreciating it in the same way that somebody who goes to like a high-end tea place and uses yoga words for peace and, you know, may peace be with you and things like that are appreciating Hinduism. It's reductive and it's kind of picking and choosing and taking the parts that you think are great without taking the parts that that culture might think are great. And so there was a lot of this that was happening in the 18th and 19th century toward pagan cultures. And so in the same way that today a, a lot of clothing brands and photographers and stuff are photographing young women wearing 
Native American headdresses, and there's a lot of appropriation of Hindu verbiage and spiritual practices that leave out all of the important parts about those cultures from which these elements are derived. There was a lot of that happening for pagan cultures, so-called, in the 18th and 19th century by these privileged aristocratic people who, again, didn't mean any harm and probably would not have seen what they were doing as harmful. But the end result, in, in the same way as the things that are going on today, very often was that it left out a lot of these important things that the cultures themselves would have considered to be important. And the end result of this was a long-standing misunderstanding about these faiths and these belief systems and these spiritual practices that were then lumped under this larger header of paganism. And so everything from Viking religions to Celtic spiritual practices to animism to ancestor worship, all of these things were lumped under this same header. And they were studied in the sense that they were outsider practices. They were studied as things that were not true religion, according to the people doing the studying. And as a result, were considered to be interesting, comical little gimmicks that, again, these noble savages practiced, but not things that were taken seriously. They were not considered to be opposing religions, for example. And as a result, they could, they could study it safely without it being considered a serious threat to the establishment. Modern paganism takes many different shapes. A lot of the more established forms of it are organized as kind of a faith, kind of the way that a lot of other organized religions are, but a little bit more diverse and diffuse. And it does tend to be, or they do tend to be, an amalgamation of a lot of different historical faiths blended together with other folk religions, and in some cases even more mainstream religions and religion rituals and practices. They tend to, and I say tend to, and that, that should apply to everything I say here, because like any religion and any belief system, this is a very diverse thing, a very multifaceted thing. But they tend to focus on practicing and acting in correct accordance with historical texts and instructions, such as they are and such as they are available. And most of the modern iterations of these pagan religions and the, the amalgamation therein, in some way, revolve around the idea of the natural world being divine, being kind of a spiritual, magical place that we have become separated from in some way, or at least uh, that we've moved away from in modern society. I'm not going to get too far into the weeds here, because I myself am, am not of any pagan faith, and I'm certain I've already misread or misinterpreted something about something to do with the broad strokes of modern paganism. But I wanted to start by mentioning it and giving that very, very brief background of the term, because this group, or this collection of somewhat formalized groups who believe in some aspect of paganism, tend to believe in that nature divinity and tend to also 
believe that there is a type of energy, a type of magic that is woven throughout the real world, throughout nature. And, and yeah, I know that the Abrahamic religions have their fair share of magical thinking as well. Things like resurrections and angels and devils and demons and prophets and so on and so forth. Lots of magic imbued in these stories. But in my experience, at least, a lot of people who adhere to the more mainstream faiths see these as communities that they're a part of more than anything else, or they see the stories themselves as kind of morality tales that are meant to teach a lesson, kind of like Aesop's fables, but are not literally true. They're not concrete registers of events that actually happened. And so they may appreciate the idea of angels, of of the idea of things watching over us, and even of other things that might punish us for misbehaving. But they don't literally think that there are goat-hooved creatures with pitchforks hopping around hoping to cook us for not eating the appropriate diet on the right day, or for using the Lord's name in vain. On the other hand, modern pagan practitioners that I've encountered seem to be really into the idea that there is a certain something in the air, in the real world, some kind of magic that is woven into our everyday experience. And the degree to which this can be manipulated, I think, probably varies based on the wing of paganism that we're talking about, and on the person, of course. But that real world plus real magic thing is really interesting to me. And it's quite relevant to this week's topic. And that topic is magic. Real magic that any of us can learn to manipulate and which grants us immense power that we can use for, well, for a lot of different things, and not all of them good. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. This episode of Let's Know Things is brought to you by Audible. If you'd like to give Audible a shot, you can go to audibletrial.com slash LKT, and you'll get a free month and a free audiobook of your choice. Stay tuned till the end of the episode, and I will give a book recommendation that you can check out in any way you see fit, including by using that free credit. This episode is also sponsored by HostGator. HostGator is offering a substantial discount to Let's Know Things listeners. If you go to HostGator.com LKT, you can see what they have on offer and the immense discount that they are offering for these offerings. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Let's get back to talking about magic. The article that I want to start from today is from New York Magazine, and it's entitled The Big Hack. And if you read it, there's a link to this on the show notes for this episode, or you can just go to New York Magazine and search for it. But the concept is explaining how a well-orchestrated hack could take down New York City. And what's really terrifying about this is that it's not pure idle speculation. It's actually filled with footnotes 
backing up all of these different assertions and showing how things that are happening today could be used and combined to knock out a massive, humming, well-protected city like New York. It's, it's really quite terrifying. It's amazing, too, if you look at it and if you check out those footnotes and read about the, the different topics that the author is writing about as asides. It's really quite cool, too, that we can do all of these things. And there's a lot of potential in all of these technologies. They're not being developed as weapons. But the fact that they can be used that way is really, really crazy. And it creates almost an existential crisis in a way. The idea that we're developing all of these things, but we don't have means of controlling them and they're not well regulated. And anybody who is really determined to use them as weapons can absolutely do so, like any new technology, really. But combined, they are especially dangerous. While reading this, I couldn't help but think back to when I started learning programming myself. I, I'm a very mediocre programmer, just the, the fundamental stuff enough to build a website. I used Flash back in the day when that was a thing and some basic PHP and Python. So I, I know enough to know how much I don't know. And I know enough to know a bit of what's possible and what's not possible. And I know enough to do some basic fundamental stuff. But as I was learning to use these programming languages, every time I would learn something new, I couldn't help but think about how magical it all was. Magical not in the sense of being amazing or memorable, not magical in the sense of like going to Disneyland, oh, it's so magical, but in the sense of being able to learn magic words and phrases and to combine them in such a way that I could make stuff happen that I could manipulate data, that I could manipulate displays, that I could manipulate what other people saw and experienced just by learning this vocabulary and processing it and delivering it in such a way. It really did seem to me like a collection of magic words that actually worked. And my, my learning of these things didn't always directly correlate with professional moves. It was just me being amazed by how powerful these things were. And this article about the big hack is a perfect display of that type of magic used for ill rather than for good. If you look at books about magic, particularly modern fiction on the topic, but some, some older fiction as well saw it this way you often see that there are systems for it. And, and this is somewhat true in the quote-unquote pagan religions as well, where there's certain rituals and instructions that if you do certain things, you light this candle and burn this type of incense and sit in a circle and draw this symbol, do these different things, and you can supposedly manipulate these forces that exist around us. You look at Harry Potter as a very popular example, and in the book, they use dog Latin, they use fake Latin, and wave a wand in a very particular way, and say the words in a very particular way, and that manipulates magic as well. It manipulates a force that exists, and it's just you reaching out to it and controlling it in some way. In other cases, in, in cases that people might not consider to be magic, but kind of has the same 
fundamental operational principles. You might pray in a certain way to try to make magic happen, or obey certain laws to try to make magic happen. A lot of magic throughout mythologies around the world is not so much an individual controlling it and using magic words, but rather reaching out to somebody who controls the magic latently. There are heroes and gods that if you speak to them in the right way, or, or even try to manipulate them, try to coerce them into using their magic, or try to deal with them, make a trade, then you can get some of that power that they just have by default. You are asking them to do magic on your behalf, essentially. But regardless, whether it's you doing the magic or somebody else doing the magic, those who have done magic historically have typically been either revered or feared, and very often killed. If you were thought to be the type of person who was doing magic, typically you were also thought to be the type of person who has too much power, and probably somebody who got that power from some type of villainous source. This was not so much the case back in the day, uh, back with polytheistic religions, the Hellene religions that were later called the pagan religions. If you look at Greek mythology, then you'll see that there's people who have a type of God-given power in this case, not just one God, but maybe you got it from one God and somebody else got their power from another God. And so there's lots of different types of power. And as a result, it's something that you can use as a tool. It's something that's more natural. Whereas once cultures move toward monotheism, the idea of having that power, which is supposed to be that one God's power, it, it becomes a little bit more strange and a little bit more frightening to a lot of people. And so when witches, for example, became a popular pastime, hunting witches and identifying witches, it was supposed that they must get their powers from the devil or from demons because there's no way that they could have that power otherwise because there's only one God. These people were then typically seen as threats in the Christian or the, the larger Abrahamic world, as opposed to people who would have had equal powers or, or thought to have equal powers in the Hellene Greek world. They would have been seen as like wise women or resources for the community that could help bring better crops and things of that nature. But history has been kind of pockmarked with people who claim to have this type of knowledge or, or an understanding of some kind of how the system worked. Sometimes it's divinely granted powers that allows them to manipulate things while others cannot. And in other cases, it's like deep-seated historical knowledge that was passed down from generation to generation or that they learned at some point that allows them to manipulate forces that exist just latently in the same way that air and fire and water exist. That they can manipulate it is the result then of some kind of knowledge that they've picked up. Almost like somebody who has the knowledge of blacksmithery can manipulate metal. These people could manipulate magic or some type of energy that other people, although they can see it happening, they, they do not themselves understand how it works. Let's get this out of the way now. There has never been a real confirmed user of magic in all of human history. Magic isn't real. If something is real, is testable, then it is science. 
if you can say, if I wave my hand in this particular way, this will happen. And if you can write that down and have other people replicate the effect, that's part of the scientific process. It's the same way that there's not really, truly such a thing as quote-unquote alternative medicine. There is stuff that's been proven to work and stuff for which there's no evidence of it working. No scientifically relevant evidence, at least. Uh, Anecdote doesn't count in this definition of real because there are too many variables at play there to keep track of and discount. Perception and self-deception is a powerful thing for everyone. It's something that we all fall prey to because of the nature of how we view and interpret the world. And this is why science requires an outside, unbiased approach to ascertaining fact. No one person's perception is infallible. What's true for you may not be true in an absolute sense, and this is why we have these types of processes in place. There is, of course, a chance that there are forces in the world that we don't understand. It's likely, in fact. And there's a chance that we can potentially come to control these forces. There's also a very solid chance that we interact with some of those forces now without understanding them or even knowing that they exist and accidentally make them do things from time to time. This does not imply that people who claim to do magic are doing magic. The idea that they, above and beyond everybody else, have come to understand these things in some way is something that is vastly more likely to be either a misunderstanding or a con than to be real. But to understand what I mean by this, the idea that there's a chance that we are interacting with forces that we don't understand now, and that we can interact with them without understanding them, to understand that Imagine humanity back before we'd harnessed fire. Chances are our ancestors would encounter fire periodically because it does occur naturally. Lightning strikes and heat waves and volcanoes and all kinds of different ways that fire can occur. There's also a chance that some of these early pre-fire people created rituals around fire and decided that if they danced just so, or said just the right words, or waved their hands in a certain way, or avoided a certain area, or lived in a certain way, then the fire would obey them, or would leave them be, would not harm them. Or maybe it would appear more often, depending on what they wanted. This is how a lot of faith-based rituals are created. And magic is no different. If, if you cannot say, if I do this, this will happen, with replicable certitude, And without the quibbling that always happens with things that aren't empirical, you you didn't pray hard enough, you didn't believe hard enough, so it didn't work even though you did all the things I told you to do. These are things that put the blame on the people trying to believe in the thing rather than the thing itself. In these cases, it is almost always the case that that thing is not actually real as opposed to the instructions just being difficult for everybody except the person who is selling you on the concept. And so a lot of these people who are selling us on these rituals and saying, if you wave your hands just so, this type of magic will happen. If you pray this way, this type of result will occur. In a lot of cases, if there is another force there that we don't understand, these are the people telling you that if you dance in a certain way, the fire will not burn down in your village. Perhaps they've accidentally tapped into a force that we don't understand But the idea that they know how to control it is laughable, frankly. 
So despite the fact that we encountered fire before and decided that a certain dance would make it appear, that is not the case. It's much better that we figure out ways to have a true understanding of these forces so that we can manipulate or create or quash it on demand. This is the difference between magic and anecdote and something that is scientifically understood. So getting that out of the way now, when I talk about magic, it's in that context. It should not be confused with me encouraging you to go adopt any particular religion or any type of woo that is out there that might be encouraging you to believe some type of non-provable, non-supportable belief system or ritual or whatever. But then before those of us who don't believe in magic or any particular type of religion get up on our high horse and never come down, let's do remember that society itself is the consequence of magical thinking. It's, it's an illusion. It's something that's not real. It's something that we imagined and then decided to make work a certain way. And we decided that these would be the rules and this would be how it worked. And then through communal agreement and through sometimes enforcement, it was so. We made an imaginary thing that did not exist manifest. And we made it so that everybody, more or less, adheres to these rules despite the fact that it's not itself real. It's an enforced and believed illusion that has resulted in myriad physical manifestations that then support its existence. And so things like cities and laws and organizations and businesses and patriotism, organized religion, the nine-to-five workday, history, all of these things are the consequence of our ability to imagine things that are not there or that we guess are maybe there but cannot prove and that we have then decided collectively to agree to pretend that they do. And so you could look at this and say, man, magic actually does suck because all of these things are horrible. Or you could look at it and say, man, I can walk down the street and not feel constantly under threat because we've all imagined that things like common law and human decency or a common idea of human decency exist. This illusory world really does have many benefits if you think about it. And it allows us to create non-tangible structures and systems and modes of operation. And that does allow us to typically be relatively safe walking around in a city, which itself is a collection of systems and invented imaginary organisms that work together to create more productivity, to distribute services, to allow people to sustain their life and their progeny, to have children and to educate them, and to create a system in which more people hopefully benefit than they would otherwise in a system where it's kind of the strong survive and the weak are pummeled and have their food taken. This collective hallucination allows us to believe that little paper notes and metal discs and digital digits in our fake bank accounts are stand-ins for actual value, and that allows us to produce different things to produce in a specialized way, and still ensure that everybody has what they need. Now, more recently, we've built an additional fake layer on top of this fake layer, the digital world, 
it formalizes some aspects of this shared hallucination of society and allows us to create sites that aren't actual locations and send mail that doesn't need a stamp and visit markets that have no real-world locations. Think about that for a second. We are using fake digital versions of a mail service, which itself is the consequence of a fake social structure that we all agree to adhere to. Our minds are truly labyrinthian and miraculous, if you think about it in that way. And so this is where we pull this all together. The real world for us is a world in which we have these social constructs like money and the post office and laws that will punish you if you hit someone with your car. It's also a world in which we have access, devices that act as portals, kind of, to another layer of information, some of which overlays with the real world, but much of it which exists in a completely different space that we also occupy, and which has its own rules, once again, rules that don't exist in real life, except that we've decided that they do, that we adhere to, making that space livable and useful and practical. Being able to code means being able to adjust the reality of that space. It means creating rules where there were previously no rules, and making manifest ideas where before there was only speculation. There was the potential for things, but there were no things. Using the right code, using the right magic words, you can manipulate that environment. You can reward or you can punish. You can build amazing things that no one has ever seen before. And you can change the perception of everyone who sees what you created. The real-world analog to this would be manipulating matter. It's as if you could make a rabbit appear out of nowhere, but not in the same way as an illusionist with clever gadgetry and sleight of hand. Like actually make a rabbit appear out of midair. And it could be whatever size you like and whatever color. And you created it by manipulating the physical rules of the environment in which you exist. It's like you said, okay, Here's some carbon, and here's a library full of pre-built code for circulatory systems, and here's something I put together that should give the thing adorably long ears. Let's make ourselves a rabbit. And then instead of waving a wand, you hit enter and process your instructions to this faux world that is itself built atop a faux world. Double faux though it may be, the consequences of actions within this world are increasingly impactful on other worlds. So as the article mentions, because we're building connected tech into so many different objects, this so-called internet of things, which is a bunch of devices that are connected to each other via the internet, via Bluetooth, and things like that, all of these things that are connected to each other and that are influencing the real world, things like refrigerators and toasters and cell phones and cars and the air conditioning system inside of buildings, these things are all now hackable. They are manipulatable by coding wizards who have the proper spells that allow them to do so. And as such, our comfortable, magic-free, real environment is increasingly less so. There's a lot more going on 
in the world now that seems like magic and that has the same impact in a lot of ways as magic that the tech neophytic can't possibly understand. People who do not keep up with this type of thing may not even realize that this is going on. To them, it's just really cool that they can control their toaster with their smartphone. But what other people see, what people who have been practicing their wizardry in this faux-faux world recognize, is that now they are able to influence the real world with their magic. They can cause your toaster to go berserk, and you won't know what happened. To you, it might as well be some force that you don't understand. The science fiction author, Arthur C. Clarke, once wrote that any sufficiently advanced technology can seem like magic. And that essentially means it was written in the context of like the human race encountering an alien species that is technologically superior to us. And so their tech is way far advanced to us. And so the things that they do seems like magic to us. Because we don't know how we get from where we are today to where they are. We don't know the different scientific discoveries required to build that kind of technology. So in the same way that an iPhone would seem like magic to somebody from the Middle Ages, their technology would seem like magic to us. And so the same is true here in a lot of ways, where the magic that these coding sophisticates are using to manipulate these objects that are now connected to each other and connected to their fake world in the real world, it can seem like magic. And it can seem just as fake to a lot of people as magic, too. And so when we hear about these threats, we don't necessarily take it seriously. We say, okay, yeah, let them draw their pentagrams, let them light their incense. I don't really believe that that's a threat. I can't possibly imagine how that would work. And that is fair based on what they know and what they've seen, but it is not the reality that we live in today. Arguably, the same is true of different components of the maker scene. That's maker with a capital M. And this is a very loose, very generalized title for a lot of different types of people. Typically, people who are makers, they, they make things, and that might mean coding. That might mean industrial design. It might mean hacking hardware together. It might mean people who are building bicycles or people who are 3D printing components for a kite that they want to build. It might be people building gadgets using new and increasingly cheap single board computers. They're building robots and, and computers and building smart devices for their homes. They're using hammers and nails, but also 3D printers cheap processors and free operating systems. And they're using this then to make manifest in the real world those things that live in their imaginations. And so what they're doing is bringing creations from that faux world into the real world. They're making something from nothing. It's magic. These aren't the only forces that operate in this way. If we're looking at coding and we're looking at building these imaginary things and making them real, if we're calling that magic, things that give a person a distinct advantage in real-world day-to-day life, these are not nearly the only skills that would allow them to do this. These are not the only types of magic that exists. Many different sciences operate this way. 
Something like chemistry is perhaps the best analog for the purposes of this discussion. If you understand chemicals and their composition and how they fit together and interact, you can actually transform one material into another material. You can alleviate toxicity. You can blow things up. Arguably, fields like psychology work the same way. If you understand how people operate and why, and what it is that drives their actions, there's a decent chance you can guess with some reliability what they'll do next and how they will respond to a given stimuli, and perhaps how they might be happier or more sad if you're an evil mind wizard. In all cases, these are fields that, with understanding and practice, you can give yourself a type of a superpower. You can make yourself a magic wielder. You can give yourself abilities that extend beyond those granted to us by just our hands and feet, just our minds and our eyeballs. Knowledge and skills that allow us to manipulate the world around us with increased efficiency and effectiveness. And even those that bring powers from one world into the other, melding the digital with the physical or the mental with the physical, and by typing or speaking in just the right way, these are skills that make things happen or exist that would not have otherwise occurred or come to be. And we can acquire this knowledge and these skills. These are not powers that are granted by gods to individuals. This is the type of magic that you can learn with research, with practice, with study. And what's really amazing is that you needn't even be a hardcore hacker to benefit from any of this knowledge, any more than someone needs to dedicate their lives to wizardry to understand the fundamentals. Learning about this other world, about the world of technology and software and how it all fits together and where it rubs up against the real world, where it intersects, that's core information that we should all ideally understand at least on a basic level. To do otherwise is to be consistently confused in a world that is increasingly shaped and powered and controlled by these non-tangible, quote-unquote, magical forces. But the same is true of any field that allows one additional perspective. The perspective of someone operating outside of the standard humdrum physical world. If you've never given real thought to how politics work, or why laws are made the way that they are, or why currency is more desirable than bartering, or how our nonverbal communication can influence what others think of us. These are intellectual paths worth following. And by learning just a bit, you can learn what's possible, even if you don't become a skilled practitioner at any of these crafts. By learning what's possible and how these things fit together into the bigger picture, you become immune to some of their potential downsides, or at least inoculated against it. And you become then capable of figuring out why things happen, whereas otherwise they might seem like pure mysticism. It's actually worrying to me how few of our lawmakers and the other people in charge of modern society actually understand the fundamentals of technology. The underpinnings of the modern world are a mystery to so many of the people who are regulating these underpinnings. It's like a muggle regulating magic, or in the reverse, a non-believer deciding how the faithful of a church should worship. 
it is just amazing to me how many of these people who are deciding the future of these technologies, of these skills, of their application in the real world, they are the ones deciding on it. And to them, it's all just voodoo. Any time I read a book or watch a movie about people who discover they have superpowers or who are learning about magic or other things of that nature, I'm just amazed because I have trouble suspending my disbelief about the ho-hum attitude that so many of these protagonists have when they are learning about these potential gifts. You get accepted into a wizard school and you're more focused on interpersonal drama and sports than reading the damn books that will teach you to cast powerful spells. What the actual hell? I would be all over those books. I would be I would never go to sleep. I would want to learn everything that I possibly could. You discover that you have superpowers but can't be bothered to take the time to train yourself in their proper use. Does that seem realistic to you? I'd like to think that many of us would immediately go into training mode so that we could become the best superheroes possible. But if you think about it, this is actually probably an accurate reflection of how many people would respond to such revelations. Because we all, in real life, have access to amazing technologies and resources and knowledge that if we only took the time to do a little reading, a little extracurricular research and practice, these things would grant us immense powers. The power to earn more, the power to understand people better, the power to build websites or apps or devices that can help us learn still other skills. It's all right there. It's all available. All of us are going through our own potential origin story. But frighteningly few of us, including those lawmakers, seem to realize it. Or if we do realize it, few of us seem to consider this to be a proper use of our time for some reason. You needn't become a psychologist to reshape your worldview with an understanding of how people think and why we act the way that we do. You needn't become a full-blown maker to learn what tools we have available, tools that are available at incredibly reasonable prices and increasingly so, that are helping all kinds of people build all kinds of things in all kinds of new ways around the world. You needn't become a coder to understand how a website works and how it's built, where it fits amongst all the other bits, bytes, wires, and wireless frequencies that are playing an ever-increasing vital role in our everyday lives. You needn't become a master of any of these things or even take on the label of a practitioner of them to benefit from them. But the more of these things we know about that we at least understand in a basic, fundamental way, the more capable we are of distinguishing what's real and what's not, what's possible and what's not, what's a threat and what's not, what's just made for Hollywood fantasy. It's something worth thinking about, at least, that all of these magical tomes, both real tomes, real books, and also other resources are available day in and day out, that we all have access to all of them. If you've got a smartphone, you've got access to all of this information. And yet we don't use it. And, and I wonder why that is. I, I think there's a lot of different reasons, a multitude of reasons that people have for not taking the time to work on their wizardry 
whatever particular wizardry we might be talking about here. But I wonder if it's in a lot of cases because people haven't taken that step back and, and recognized this potential power that they have. If you are somebody who is taking the opportunity to do that research and to practice and to recite your spells and wave your wands as often as possible, good on you. Just remember that as you become more and more powerful, to use your powers for good, whatever that happens to mean to you. This episode of Let's Know Things was brought to you by HostGator. HostGator is the company that I use to host all of my online properties. They allow me to project my spells that I cast ever outward. If you're looking to start a blog or a portfolio for your work, to build a website for your business, they are a wonderful option. Great customer service, great prices, great uptime, and all of that. If you go to hostgator.com LKT, you will receive a substantial discount on their already quite reasonable prices. Hostgator.com LKT. This episode is also sponsored by Audible. Go to audibletrial.com LKT. You will get a free month of Audible, and you will also get a free audiobook of your choice. And that is great because audiobooks are typically a little bit expensive. Having a membership to Audible gives you an immense discount on any audiobook that you might buy from them. And they've got, I think, a few hundred thousand audiobooks on hand. It's ridiculous. I'd like to make a book recommendation that you can spend that credit on. There is an audiobook version of this, or I, I just highly recommend reading this book either way, however you ingest it. And this book is one that I recently finished. I'm actually currently reading the second book in the three-book series. This is the first book. It's called The Three-Body Problem, and it's by, I'm probably going to butcher the name, Lou Cixin, C-I-X-I-N. I'm absolutely certain that's not how that's pronounced, but he, he's a Chinese author. This book came out in 2008 and became the most popular science fiction book in China, and it was very recently translated by Ken Liu, again, probably butchering that name. But it's important because there's not a lot of Chinese literature, of Chinese fiction work that makes its way into English. And so this translation is a really big deal. Absolutely interesting, the, the whole series so far that, that I've read of it, a book and a half thus far, the series is Remembrance of Earth's Past. And so the series itself is great. The story is great. The characters are wonderful. What I'm finding particularly fascinating about it, though, is that it does present a story from another cultural standpoint. And so the beginning of the book, it starts out talking about the revolution period of China, because some of the characters go through that period. And it's just amazing. It's such a different approach to this than somebody writing from a Chinese standpoint who happens to be American or European, for example. And it's horrifying in so many different ways. And something that I took away from it is the, the threat that a lot of very well-meaning people getting together and ganging up and taking over, how threatening that can be to social organization and to the, the rights of the individual. It's, uh, it's very, very compelling and very interesting. So just for the historical context alone, it's utterly fascinating. But the story itself is also very compelling. It's essentially a tale of Earth 
finding out that we're going to be invaded in 400 years. So then what do you do when you know that there is an invasion coming and they're going to wipe you the hell out and take over your planet? But you've got vast swaths, vast generations before it's actually going to happen. What happens in those 400 years in between? And that is what this trilogy covers. So highly recommend it. This book, the first book in the series, is called The Three-Body Problem. It is by Liu Cixin, L-I-U-C-I-X-I-N. Very highly recommended. Excellent use of your time if you want to pick up a good piece of fiction to read or if you want to get an audiobook to listen to. Again, audibletrial.com slash LKT. If you use that, you get that free credit. You could snag this book for free. If you don't enjoy the service, you can always cancel, but I, I think you'll probably enjoy it. It's a very reasonable cost for a wonderful addition to one's life. So checking out those sponsors is one way to support the show. You can also support it directly if you'd like, monetarily. Go to letsknowthings.com. If you scroll down a little bit, you will see a bunch of different links and buttons that will allow you to contribute to the show. Giving a dollar an episode would be absolutely amazing. You can give more if you like, but a dollar an episode would be just truly appreciated. You can also support the show by sharing it with your friends, sharing it with social media. Take a link to your favorite episode and post that on Twitter or Facebook or something like that. That helps a whole lot, as does posting a review up on iTunes, leaving some stars and a quick written review really helps the audience for the show continue to grow, and I very much appreciate it. Also at letsknowthings.com, you will find the show notes for this episode and every episode. You can also subscribe to the Let's Know Things newsletter, which comes out every Monday and contains an assortment of curated links to interesting things. You can find Let's Know Things on Instagram and Facebook at Let's Know Things. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. My blog is exilelifestyle.com, and I have a YouTube show called Consider This that you might want to check out. And you can find me pretty much everywhere on the social media networks at Colin is my name. Thank you so very much for joining me. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. <laughs>